You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So on June 6, 1944, the long-awaited Allied landing in northern France began. It was and still is the largest naval, air, and land operation in military history. On that day, approximately 160,000 Allied soldiers landed across five different beaches. Some came by boat, others by parachute, with the goal of establishing a beachhead so that they could push inland toward France. That day, now known to us as just simply D-Day, Uh, put Operation Overlord into action. Now for years uh, leading up to this day, allied leaders and military uh, planners debated about when and where and how to land troops in Northern Europe. What wasn't debated was whether or not they needed to do it. Everyone knew that success against the German war machine depended upon a successful invasion of Northern Europe. They knew that casualties would be inevitable. They knew that victory was crucial and that success was anything but guaranteed. On the evening before D-Day, troops gathered together to hear the June 6th order of the day from General Eisenhower. Here's an excerpt from what he said. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves and the free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of the 1940 and 41. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, your devotion to duty, and skill in battle. And we will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck. And let us beseech the blessing of the Almighty God upon this great and noble understanding, undertaking. See, the stakes were high, and Eisenhower chose his words carefully because he knew that the invasion of Normandy would be the defining moment in World War II. And he was right. Though that day did not end the war, that invasion dealt the decisive blow that would eventually lead to the defeat and unconditional surrender of Germany. So we asked this morning, what is a defining moment? Well, it's that point at which a situation is clearly seen uh, to start to change. It's where the tide begins to turn. It's that moment where a new trajectory is set. It's that, it's that formation of a new identity. And today we come to Exodus chapter 14, and it's the story of Israel's deliverance from slavery. And it becomes the defining moment in their history, when they are finally 
decisively set free from slavery. It's this moment where they really start to see who God is. And it's a moment that sets them on a new trajectory. And as we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to see three different truths emerge out of this defining moment. So first, if you're taking notes, here's our outline today. First, we see that God's deliverance declares his glory. As we see the people of God delivered, it becomes a theater to display the glory of God. See, God's glory is meant to define his people. It's meant to mark them in such a way that it gives aim to their worship. So we're going to see that God's deliverance declares his glory. Second, we see that God's deliverance uh, divides between life and death. The crossing of the Red Sea becomes a dividing line between faith and unbelief, life and death. And those who cross over from the shores of death into the shores of life do so by grace through faith. And third and finally, we'll see that God's deliverance develops our faith. This is a great case study. Israel as a whole is a great case study of what it looks like to stumble forward in faith. Their faith is imperfect at best. And yet God is patient to use this defining moment to develop their faith. So let's look together at Exodus 14 and verse 1 to see our first point, that God's deliverance declares his glory. Here again, the word of the Lord, chapter 14, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites that they must turn and camp before Pi-Hahiroth between Migdol and the sea, and you are to camp by the sea before Baal-Zephon opposite. So as chapter 14 opens up, the Lord gives direction to the people of Israel through Moses, and he tells them, head south towards the Red Sea and camp at Pi-Hahiroth. Now, the location of this city is unknown, but here's what we do know. We know that at the end of chapter 13, the people of God have left Egypt from where they lived in the land of Goshen. And as they make their way out, they are being led by Yahweh. And the Lord chooses to manifest his presence in such a way that, they are, that it's uh, unmistakable that God is with them. And he is a pillar of cloud by day, and he is a pillar of fire by night. Now, just try to imagine the awesome display of, plow, of power and glory as you would visually see this manifest presence of God as he leads his people. And the text makes a specific point that he did not depart from his people. So it's not as if sometimes the cloud was there and the fire was there and then other times they felt abandoned. No, he was always with them. Look with me at chapter 13 and verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and by now. Now listen to this. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. He was always with them. And as he leads, he decides to take his people the long way. Now if you just look at the map, there was a shorter, more obvious route to go to the promised land from Egypt. There was a famous road called the Via Maris, which is Latin for the way of the sea. And it would have gotten them there much more directly, much more quickly. The problem is it would have led the people right through a bunch of different Egyptian military outposts and into this land of the Philistines, and it would have brought them immediately into battle. 
But they weren't ready for battle. They weren't trained soldiers. Though there are days coming when they will have to face military opposition, the Lord has another plan. He is setting up, building a stage, building a theater to display his glory. Verse 3, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. See, the Lord tells Moses that eventually Pharaoh will hear of the route that they're taking and he'll know, man, I have ample time to catch up to them. He will also think, look, look at them kind of fumbling and bumbling and making their way aimlessly through the desert. They don't even know where they're going. And the hardened heart of Pharaoh will undergo one last hardening and Pharaoh will come and chase after them. And then the Lord reveals the purpose behind all of this. He says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. We've said this before, and it's worth saying again. The book of Exodus is, a, is God's self-revelation of his glory. It's, it's one of the main things he wants to do throughout the book, is that when you read it, you come to the conclusion, the glory of God is awesome. It's the, 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 the manifestation of his perfection, power, and presence. It's, it's, his, it's, his, it's the manifold perfection of God going public so that you can see it. He is putting on display so that those with eyes of faith can see God for who he really is. He has repeated the sentiment over and over to make himself known throughout the book. Twice in chapter 7 he says it. Again in chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 12, he'll say it again at the end of chapter 14 and verse 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. You see, friends, God desires that his character and his name would be on display so that all people would know that there was no one like the Lord. He is to be feared as a loving Savior a mighty judge, and a sovereign king. The crossing of the Red Sea will become a defining moment in their history, and it will be repeated and looked back upon over and over in Scripture. It would be impossible for me to go through every single reference just for the sake of time, but it is, it is so embedded into the life of Israel. In fact, nearly every time the law is given, the rationale for the people to receive that law and to obey him is because the Lord is the one who brought them and delivered them out of Egypt. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 11. You shall therefore love the Lord your God, keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. So that's the, that's the law. Keep his rules. And consider today, since I'm not speaking to your children who have not known or see it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God. His greatness, his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his signs and deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land, and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses, and to their chariots, <clears throat> and how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord had destroyed them to this day. You see what he's doing? He's calling them to fidelity and obedience to his law because he is the one who delivered them out of slavery and conquered their enemies. In the book of Isaiah, he calls his people to repentance by reminding them of the greatness and glory of God when he delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh. 
Isaiah 63, verse 12, the Lord who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself a what? An everlasting name. There are easily over a hundred references in the Bible to this deliverance event. Over and over and over again, God is pointing his people back to what? This defining moment as a declaration and display of his glory. So much, in fact, it would be hard to overstate the importance and centrality of this event. It was the defining moment in their history, and all of it was meant to point them to and anchor them to the glory of God. Charles Spurgeon said this, God's great design in all his works is the manifestation of his own glory. Any aim less than this were unworthy of himself. He cannot act for the good of his creatures as an ultimate aim, for that were for God to be impelled by a motive less great than his own nature. Since there can be nothing greater than the infinite, and there can be but one infinite, if the infinite God be moved by an infinite motive, which is the only one worthy of him, that motive must be found in his own glory. Do you see what Spurgeon is saying? He's saying delivering the Israelites out of Egypt is certainly a worthy goal. And it's certainly on God's list of goals in the Exodus. So he wants to deliver his people, but it is not the ultimate goal. It is not the paramount goal. The ultimate aim of delivering the people out of slavery is the display of his own glory. Anything less than that would make something else more worthy of God. Whatever God's ultimate aim is, that would be God saying, this is what's most important in the world. And it is important to deliver Israel out of slavery, but it is not the most important thing. God himself is what is ultimately worthy. And so his ultimate purpose and everything that he does is to point people back to himself. Now, you might think, well, that, that kind of sounds like pride, like all this attention on oneself. That, that's like the definition of pride. And the answer is yes, that is the definition of pride if you're not what's ultimately worthy. See, when we strive to make our name great, to get all eyes on me and to declare the manifold reasons why we should be, why we are deserving of your attention and worship, that is called pride. And when that happens, here's what's going on. We have become delusional and we have become blind because of our own sin to the point where we think all eyes should be on me. But when God does it, when God is pointing your gaze to him, he's actually acting in accordance with reality and declaring the truth that we are so prone to suppress. When God displays and declares his glory, he is inviting us into infinite delight. In other words, fixing your eyes on him, seeing God for who he is will lead to your restoration. It will lead to your infinite joy and your ultimate good. When God is pointing you to himself, he is acting in your best interest. It's in his glory that we find healing and wholeness and meaning beyond all compare. This is God's stated purpose for all that is about to unfold. The hope is that this definitive deliverance becomes a milestone moment in Israel's 
collective history. The goal is that they would become so convinced of his love that they would see his power, that they would see his glory, that in the everyday stuff of life, for, for the years that come, that faith and obedience would flow because they see that Yahweh is the, uh, the only true organizing principle for everything. The goal is that when life takes a hard turn, that they're so convinced of his glory and power that they instinctively turn to him because they know the Lord has everything under control. We can trust him. We can trust that he will be with us. We can trust that, we, that he will be for us. We can trust that in the Lord, we have everything we need. Friends, I would like to suggest to you that we all organize our lives around glory. Now, we may not say it in those terms, but that's exactly what we do. It's, it's how we're made. There is something in your life that you consider to be the unmovable, the non-negotiable, the worth giving your time, energy, and attention to. There's something in your life that captivates you, that holds your attention, that has your allegiance. That is glory. And that is your functional God. Something provides the framework, the lens through which you see the world. Something is the... um, Uh, the filter through which you make all of your decisions. Whatever that thing is, that is your functional God. Exodus 14 is saying, there is no one like the Lord. There is no one deserving to be your organizing principle. There is no one. There is nothing that can compare. He is a loving savior, a mighty judge, and a sovereign king. His glory knows no rival. Therefore, you should worship him. You should obey him. You should follow him. You should build your life around him. That's our first truth this morning, in this defining moment, that God's deliverance declares his glory. Here's our second truth, that God's deliverance divides between life and death. Verse five, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and he took his army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and he overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. Just like the Lord said, Pharaoh's grief over the loss of his son is soon outshadowed by his anger and desire to control the Israelites. In other words, his already hardened heart goes through one final hardening and he readies his army to pursue and recapture his slaves and the bible tells us that he sends an army of 600 chosen chariots along with other chariots and soldiers and they make haste to catch up with the people of israel now historically the egyptian warriors were greatly feared they were formidable enemies they were excellent warriors and they had mastered the chariot now, I, don't, I know we don't think of that as like a, a, a scary war machine, but it was like a machine gun on wheels. 
So here's what it would look like. One person would take the reins and they would drive the horse and the other person would stand at the back with a bow and they were excellent um, with the bow. And inside the chariot, it would be lined with a bunch of quivers that were stockpiled with arrows. And so there, there were, there, they would pelt their, anim- their enemies with arrows as they rode around. And the charioteers were given the best armor and they rode into battle wearing these long coats with bronze scales. And it would give them the appearance of large, upright lizards. Again, I want you to notice how often this theme of the serpent keeps coming up. The serpentine battle from the garden rages on as the seed of the serpent goes to wage war against the seed of the woman. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. So one minute, Moses tells us Israel is walking defiantly, which means without fear. And they're, for the first time, experiencing what it means to be free. For the first time in their life, they are not under this heavy hand of oppression. They're not looking over their shoulder. But in the distance, the earth begins to rumble. I mean, 600 more and more chariots would make the earth rumble. And you can feel it and you can hear it and then they look over their shoulder and what behold they see Egypt coming and all that fear all that anxiety in a moment replaces that defiance with despair and it comes in like a flood now if you're just looking at this situation this to the naked eye this is a massacre on the horizon if you size up Israel and you size up Egypt there's just no comparison Israel is not military trained They have no chariots. The army of Pharaoh is vastly superior to the Israelites. Superior in training, size, motivation, technology, experience. Israel has none of that. This is one of the great military forces in antiquity coming to reclaim their property. And the people of Israel are stuck. They're they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. They've got the Red Sea in front of them with no way around it. There's no bridges, there's no boats, and they have this incoming Egyptian army behind them. And so they literally have nowhere to go. If the battle unfolds, many will die. Some will die just because the course of the battle. Some will die in a execution style as examples so that the people of Israel never dare to leave again. And some, whoever's remaining, will give up their life and return as slaves. It's literally for them a matter of life and death. And the fear causes temporary blindness. All they can see is the Egyptian army in front of them. Moses says, and behold, they see the Egyptian army. Now think about what they're not seeing. They're not seeing the Lord who has not departed them. He is with them in this awesome glory cloud. But in that moment, fear causes temporary blindness. In fact, when you're afraid, it can cause tunnel vision where you cannot see the periphery and all you can see is what's in front of them. And they forget that the Lord is with them. They forget all of the plagues that have just happened. All they can see standing between them and an Egyptian army 
is an octogenarian with a stick. And they're just not confident that he can do it. They don't like the odds. That's not a bet you would take on FanDuel. And so into this darkness, the Lord speaks. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. He goes on to say, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will, here's our word again, get glory over Pharaoh, all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, that's the glory cloud, went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So I want you to imagine this scene. As the armies of Pharaoh are closing in, The people of Israel are looking at them, and God says, I want you to look toward the sea. I don't don't want you to even look at them. And then the cloud of God's presence moves in behind them to shield them. God moves into battle formation, and it stops the army of Pharaoh dead in their tracks, to the point that for the rest of this scene, the army of Pharaoh doesn't even come near to them. They're never in danger. The Lord fights for them. It's like dad showing up on the playground to confront the bully. There's not a battle. There's not a fight. Like when dad shows up, the bully shuts up. Just his presence shuts everything down. That's what happens here. God moves into position. And as the day turns to dusk, turns to night, this, this great ancient army has to stop. And the Bible says they were never even able to come near to the Israelites. Verse 21, then Moses, he stretches out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground and the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. So Moses obeys the Lord. He stretches out his hand over the sea, and the Lord of the winds calls upon a strong east wind and made a way when there was no way. And by faith, the people of God walk through the seas. Just imagine a massive water wall on your right and on your left, and they're able to walk through on dry ground. 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, that'd be like the middle of the night, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. The pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So as the people move forward, the Egyptians follow after them. And the Lord maintains his position between the people of Israel and the Egyptians. But 
the Egyptians find that they're not able to move as easily as the Israelites. It seems like the Israelites are walking on dry ground and the Egyptians are clogging through muddy ground and their, their chariot wheels are getting stuck in the mud. And at this point, the Egyptians finally go, I think the Lord is fighting for them. Which again, just shows you the blindness of sin, that they didn't get it before this moment. They didn't get it with all the plagues. They didn't get it when this glory cloud moved in front of them. Like they had multiple points to repent and turn and go the other way. They try to turn back, but at that point, it's too late. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Friends, the Israelites are able to pass through the waters of judgment by the grace of God through their faith in God. Every step on the dry ground was a step of faith. Faith that God would provide a way when there was no way. Faith that God would maintain and sustain this wall of water. Faith that God would ensure safe passage from the shores of death to the shores of life. Faith that God would not abandon them in the midst of their journey. Grace opened the door of deliverance and their faith made it possible to cross the great divide between life and death. For the Egyptians, their efforts to cross the great divide are thwarted and they come to conclusion that they're on the wrong side of history too late. Reminds me of Proverbs 29 and verse one. He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Friends, this is a hard truth. Pride will stiffen your neck. It will make you rigid. And at some point, it will be too late. At some point, if you will not repent, it will break beyond healing. The crossing of the Red Sea becomes a defining moment in the life of Israel, not merely because of the miraculous nature of the dividing of the waters, but because it divides the people into two categories. It divides the people between people who believe and trust the Lord on one hand and those who don't. And friends, I would like to suggest to you that this is the basic division in the world. You know how people are always saying, well, there's two kinds of people and then they make some arbitrary categories. And, and while those are funny and helpful and all those kinds of things, Ultimately, at the end of the day, there really are two kinds of people. There are those who believe in the Lord, and there are those who don't. There are those who cross over from death to life, and there are those who have the waters of judgment swallow them up. The decisive nature of the crossing of the Red Sea is what led Paul to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen to what he says. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Think about it. He's talking about this Exodus moment, under this cloud. 
and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses and the cloud and the sea. What Paul is saying is that our forefathers in faith were led by the cloud of God and they passed through the seas and he uses this language that they were baptized into Moses. Now, what does that mean? What he's saying is that Moses was able to stretch out his hand. He was able to lead the people through the waters of judgment to safety on the other side. Why? Because they were united to Moses as their mediator. It wasn't through their power. It was the power of God in Moses, working through Moses. And as they were connected to him as their mediator, he was able to lead them through these waters of judgment from the shores of death to the shores of life. Now this language of baptism is crucial because Paul's gonna make another connection in the book of Romans about our baptism in Christ. Look what he says in Romans 6, 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Now look at me. Let me connect these two things for you. The language of baptism is what connects both of these passages. The language of baptism means to be united. See, when we get baptized, we are, we're publicly um, showing the church, we're showing the, the church who all is here that we have been united to Jesus. That's what baptism is. It's a depiction and showing that we've been baptized into Christ, that we have, just as, just as Jesus was able to stretch out his hands to suffer for us, for our sin in our place, he's doing so and he's leading his people through the waters of judgment to safety on the other side. And those who are united to Jesus by faith are able to cross over from the shores of death to the shores of life. Just like Moses was able to lead the people, Jesus is the truer and greater Moses who is able to lead his people through the waters of judgment from the shores of death to the shores of life. And that is what we are depicting when we get baptized. We're going into the waters of judgment. You know why they're waters of judgment? Because if you stay in the water, what happens? You die. We don't live, we can't live in the water. So they're waters of judgment. But we go into the waters of judgment, showing that we have been buried with Christ. We're united to him in his death. And then we come out of those waters of judgment to show that we are also not merely united to him in his death, but we're united to him in his resurrection. And now, what were waters of judgment become cleansing waters as we walk in the newness of life. We are united to Jesus in his death and burial, and we are united to him in his resurrection. That's why John says in chapter five, verse 24, Jesus is speaking, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is what? Passed from death to life. Friends, Jesus is the truer and greater Moses who leads us out of the bondage of slavery into the promised land of eternal life. Another way to think about it, if the Passover meal highlights the death of Christ as the Passover lamb is sacrificed, the crossing of the Red Sea highlights his victorious resurrection. Taken together, 
these two deliverance moments of the Exodus is a picture of what is to come for all who believe. Be able to cross over from death to life. At the same time, it's a picture of what is to come for those who refuse to repent and believe. See, the plagues were God's, you could think about them as God's kindness, his long-suffering to display coming judgment. Every one of the plagues was like a sign saying, repent and believe for the end is near. There was plenty of time for the Egyptians to be humbled, to see the display and power of God, and to come to the conclusion that what? There is no one like the Lord. They too had the opportunity, the invitation to take shelter under the blood of the lamb. They too could have been counted among the mixed multitude who left Egypt to pursue life with Yahweh. We know that hundreds and thousands of Egyptians left with the people of God. But at some point, this passage is making clear that at some point we run out of time. At some point it is too late. At some point, the wheels get clogged and you have nowhere to go and the water will come crashing down. And only those united to Jesus will pass through the waters of judgment from the shores of death to the shores of life. Exodus 14 teaches us that God's deliverance not only declares his glory, but it is also a decisive, defining moment to choose life or death. Third, God's deliverance develops our faith. By the end of the chapter, Moses says to the people of Israel, fear the Lord and believe. He says that the people do fear the Lord and believe in him. Now, it's not that they didn't believe the Lord and fear him before that. There's multiple times in the book of Exodus we find out that the people believe and fear the Lord. But, In this moment, their belief and fear were deepened. It was developed. Their faith grew. See, faith is not static. It's not an on-off switch. It's dynamic. And as such, it needs to be nurtured. And as such, it can grow. And typically, faith grows and develops over time, especially when we go through difficult situations where we are forced to rely and trust the Lord. I know some of you in our church right now are going through very difficult and trying situations. And friends, I would let you know and remind you that these are opportunities that God will use. I'm not saying they're welcomed. I'm not saying you would sign up for them. What I'm saying is the Lord has a purpose in them and he will grow and develop and deepen your faith. In this final movement, I wanna show you their progression of faith and fear. Moses is really intentional with his language, and it's a remarkable case study of what it looks like for us to stumble forward in faith. While their faith is imperfect, God is patient to develop their faith. Remember, at the beginning of the chapter, the Israelites are walking out of Egypt defiantly. You remember that? That means without fear. For years, they walked around as slaves, burdened with the burden of fear always before them. What happens if you're a slave and you get out of line? You get beaten. What happens if you missed your quota? You get beaten. Or you could simply just be at the wrong place at the wrong time and you would be punished for it. But for the first time, they're walking out defiantly and Moses 
makes sure to mention it. Remember that in verse 8? That the people of Israel were going out defiantly. But then as the army approaches, their nightmare returns and fear takes over. Verse 10 says that they feared greatly. And then look what they say in verses 11 to 12. So this is how the people respond to Moses. They say, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. Now, if you go back and read the book of Exodus, you'll realize that they said nothing like this. In fact, when Moses comes and tells them, hey, I've heard from Yahweh, he is coming to deliver them. What do they do? They worship and they believe in Yahweh. They, they praise God for what he's coming to do. At no point do they say, hey, deliverance, that sounds terrible, leave us here. We love serving the Egyptians. No, no, they never said anything like that. This is fear-based delusion. And I'm not judging them for it. I'm just saying sometimes you can be so terrified of something that you start speaking in ways that do not line up with reality. And the word for that is called delusion. Fear can not only cause temporary blindness where we have tunnel vision and can't see our whole periphery, it can also cause temporary insanity. In fact, if we're just thinking about what would have been logical and reasonable, you would think that the people would have assumed, okay, here comes Egypt. We've already seen the Lord perform 10 miracles, 10 plagues. I bet God has an 11th up his sleeve. That would have been the most logical. They've just watched a 10-point sermon on the power of God and his commitment to deliver them. They should have expected God will do something amazing here. And yet, that's not what they think will happen at all. Despite God giving them irrefutable evidence of his power and might and his commitment to save them, their faith is still weak. It needs development. And here's the beauty. God doesn't throw them into the sea with the Egyptians for their weak faith. If I were God, I would be such a tyrant. I'd be like, what more do I need to show? You know what? All of you into the ocean, you're all done. I'll find somebody else. But that is not what God does. I, I'm just so tired of people saying, where's the grace of God in the Old Testament? Friends, it's right here, plain as day. God is patient, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love with his covenant people. Instead of condemning them, what does he do? He speaks words of life to them through Moses. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you've seen today, you will never see again. Why? The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Moses has spent a lot of time with the Lord. He has looked into the fire of God, and he has seen what the Lord will do for his people. So Moses' faith is probably a little further along than the people of Israel. And he is leading his people to follow his example, to have the same kind of resilient faith. What is he doing right now? He is calling his people to an active kind of faith. Listen, 
Faith in theory is fine, but at some point it needs to become faith in practice. You actually have to put your faith into action. It's interesting that when the people see the Egyptians coming before them, their eyes get fixated on him. Moses is doing something here with the language of, of the language of seeing. What happens is when they see the Egyptians, they get this myopic focus and that's all they can see. And what is Moses doing? He's saying, no, no, you, you need to look beyond your present situation and circumstances and you need to turn your eyes to the Lord. He says, see the Egyptians. I want you to take one more look at them because after today, you will never see them again. Now, after you've had your one last look, turn your eyes to the Lord and see the salvation that he will achieve for you today. And when he does this, the people's strength, their, their faith is strengthened and they're able to turn towards the sea and get ready to march forward as the Lord makes a way through the waters. And when all is said and done, at the end of the chapter, as the sun rises on a new day, Moses says, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians. And so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. This doesn't mean that their lessons of faith are over. Doesn't mean that they've arrived. If you keep on going, you're going to see Israel has a long way to go. In other words, the journey for them is just beginning. But on this day, their faith grows. It is further developed. It didn't grow painlessly. It didn't grow passively. It grew as they experienced doubt and fear. It grew as they decided to listen to the words of God and to actively trust in him. So you, are, you and I are no different. What we see here is the normal path of life. There will be times where you experience great faith, where things are going well, and you'll walk defiantly. Like everything is going your way. You've got plunder in your hand. You know, you're headed towards the promised land. Everything is going well. But then what happens? The earth begins to rumble. You hear something in the distance and you turn around and you see chariots coming to make their way to destroy you. And it is quite natural and normal to experience that fear. What I'm not saying is people of God never experience fear. No, no, you will experience the fear. There will be times where you have panic and you will temporarily become blind and delusional. But it's in those moments where you need the stored up word of God, where you need your community of brothers and sisters to speak life to you, to say, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Remember, friend, that God has delivered you from the greatest enemies you could ever face in sin and death. Become skilled at preaching the good news to yourself. Because of the gospel, we don't have to fear death and judgment because through Christ, we have already passed through the waters of judgment. We died with him and friends, one day we will be raised with him. Therefore, nothing you're experiencing today can ultimately overwhelm you. Remember that the Lord is ever before you in the same way that he did not depart from the people of Israel, the Lord will never depart from you. That's what Advent is all about. The coming savior, Emmanuel, God with us. 
Stand firm. Be strengthened by faith in the finished work of Jesus, knowing that all of your life is experienced on the shoreline of life. You are no longer a slave. You have been delivered and set free from the bondage of sin. You're no longer under its dominion of control. So you really can be still. You can calm the anxiety standing firm on the foundation of Christ. That doesn't mean, standing still doesn't mean abdicating responsibility and doing nothing. What it does mean is prayerfully taking responsibility for what needs to be done and then leaving and trusting the rest to God. Do all that you can do. Be responsible for what you have responsibility over. And then the rest, trust the Lord. It's not in your hands anymore. Do your best. Trust God for outcomes. And in time, friends, just like the Israelites, you will see the salvation of the Lord. You will see the Lord work in ways beyond what you would have planned, beyond what you can imagine, and you will be better for it. God will deepen and develop your faith and you'll be ready for what lies ahead. Friends, Exodus 14 is the defining moment of God's deliverance. Let's learn, let's apply these truths to our lives. Let's be captivated by the glory of God. Let's let nothing, no rival glories, no lesser glories come in and steal our gaze and our attention. Let's organize our lives around who God is and what he has done. God's work in salvation is meant to captivate, sustain your heart so that we worship him and then organize our lives around him. Don't forget, God's deliverance really is a dividing line between life and death. Don't harden your hearts against the Lord. As long as today is still called today, repent and believe in the Lord. Trust your life to him so that by grace through faith, you cross over from death to life. And let's grow our faith. Let's, let's stand firm. Let's lean into the hard things so that as God um, walks with us and leads us through hard ways, we will be developed as he makes a way when there is no way.